Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Behind the Goals podcast from Supporters Direct Scotland. Andrew and I today are going to be joined by Oliver Haltaway. Um, he's going to be telling us about the Bath City story. Um, it's maybe one that's less known than some of the some of the higher profile um, um, community ownership stories south of the border. Wimbledon, Manchester United, uh, or FC, FC United of FC Manchester, United, yeah. the FC Wimbledon, yeah. and get a lot more media attention. But the story of Bath City um, is is quite quite phenomenal, really. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I, I learned an awful lot on the on on, on our chat with Oliver um, that I I didn't know before about that story. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd seen Oliver give a, a presentation at the uh, the SD Summit last year, and the, I was like, you had I really hadn't heard much about it, but. I think I said it on several occasions during that interview, but it was a very refreshing story to hear that yeah. actually football can be run in this way. And when you're ever feeling a bit disillusioned about how football's being run, then it's good to know that there is this kind of grassroots movement yeah. in, in the sixth tier, at least, that yeah. hopefully will um, progress up and um, learn a lot from it. Good to hear the use of community shares as well, which yeah. is something we discuss. In the, it's it's in something the that's maybe, maybe not the most uh, commonly known uh, route to to, to community ownership um, but there's a real live example of uh, how it's made a real difference in both in terms of how the club is structured now um, but the amount of money that they were able to raise in order to get there mm. um, I'll give some numbers about about what he thinks they may, may have raised with a more traditional fundraising campaign of, of just asking for donations versus what they raised uh, through through community shares mm. so it's a, a, a great great live example absolutely um, uh, we also have a bit of time to discuss uh, Ken Loach uh, yeah, which is I always enjoy because being a bit of a film lover. Yeah, uh, uh, which was which was good to hear his involvement in the campaign and also um, a lot of crossover to our interview last week with Kevin Wright about engaging fans. And that's right. I, I think I think there there was phrases that they used that were almost identical, talking mm. about democracy as a two way process. Mm. Or, 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 or I think um, with Kevin, he he talked about you know fan engagement as a two way process. Um, but that's absolutely right. Actually, having a a mature conversation, uh, exploring things in detail, not just paying at lip service. Um, so I think that's that's really good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, we'll dive straight into it. Okay. So today we're joined by Oliver Holtaway, um, who's involved in Supporters Direct south of the border here, uh, and is a Bath City fan. Um, so Oliver, tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I've been a I've been a Bath City supporter for about seventeen years now. Uh, and most of that time I spent uh, as an exile. I wasn't living in Bath. I grew up in Bath. But I was living in London and, and further afield. Um, but yeah, um, around about the time that I moved back to Bath about four years ago, uh, I started to volunteer for the club, uh, or actually particularly I volunteered for the uh, Bath City Supporters Society, which was the uh, Supporters Trust. Um, my background is journalism and public relations. You know, I, I can you know, I can write relatively easily, uh, and so I became the secretary okay. of the Supporters Trust, which you know at that point was just a small organization, about a hundred a hundred members. Um, we owned about seventeen percent, one seven percent of the club. We had a director on the board, uh, but you know that was about it. Um, so it was, it was kind of a pretty quiet affair and they were pretty desperate to get new people involved uh -huh. um so yeah i was having to put my hand up and become secretary 
Uh, and then, yeah, about four weeks after I agreed to do that at the AGM, uh, the, the door opened for us to pursue a uh, community ownership bid. Uh-huh. And suddenly I was thrown very heavily into <laughs> <laughs> what, what prompted that campaign. What prompted that bid in that campaign? Uh, um, it, it's a, uh, to, we were in a situation where um, we were already a supporter-owned club. So we were owned by the fans, thanks to a fundraising that had happened uh, towards the start of this century. Um, but we hadn't pursued a community, a community ownership model for that. So basically we had five or six people who owned 51% of the club mm-hmm. and they were all supporters, but you know, they, they owned the club and you know, they made up the majority of the board um, and they ran the club. Uh, and they also um, kept the club afloat by um, making directive loans, a very common model of yeah. all levels of football, yeah. especially in non-league. Um, and to put it simply, they just got to the point where they said, we just can't keep, lending money mm-hmm. into the club we can't keep pumping money into the club anymore there has to be new sources of finance there that's something has to change and they made a public appeal in uh, november 2015 um sorry november 2014 uh to say this um and at which point the support society stepped forward and said look you know we we've come to you in the past and said that we want to move to community ownership will you let us have a chance to raise the money to do this. Like, what's the what's the price? What's the deal that we can come to to make this happen? So, and and that's really so. Yeah, in January of that year, January 2015, we sat down with the board members and said, "Can we have a go at this? Can we see what happens?" Yeah. Um, and you know, they were they were cautious at first, but uh, we we managed to get things going and kind of come back with a plan uh, and, and um, agree with a, with a, a target price. Okay. So that was uh so that was in 2015 that yep. you had that uh, so uh, how did that go how did that pan out? Um it we didn't get there the first time around. So the the, the first time around we agreed with them uh a target price of 750,000 pounds. So a pretty mm-hmm. high bar and had we achieved that we would have completely bought them out and taken over the club yeah. so we would we, you know, we would have been a full cbs uh, you know, full uh, community benefit society fully cooperatively run in the way that asu wimbledon is in the way that fc united of manchester are as well um we didn't get there we got up we got a we, we launched in june we ran for three months our fundraising campaign using community shares uh we had a good response but we got up to uh, three hundred thousand. So okay. we're not quite halfway there. Yeah. Um, I think the main issue we had was partially it was obviously a very high target. Secondly, we were running really from a standing start. So we, we didn't really have time to educate people around what the community, community ownership model looks like, uh, what community shares are, how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, our message was kind of half kind of save the club, but at the same time, we couldn't really say that the club was in immediate threat of closure. Yeah. I mean, there were some very pressing debts that were threatening the club's existence at that point, but we couldn't quite come out and say that, you know, either we succeed this year or the club's bust. I mean, that, that wasn't strictly true. So, we, yeah. you know, it was a, yeah. a difficult message to get across. Um, 
And also, I think to some extent, we didn't quite have a really clear plan for how we were going to um, turn the club, or, not, not an obvious and tangible plan for how we would turn the club's fortunes around. We were basically saying that we we're facing a bit of a crisis, things are tough, we'll be stronger if we're all in it together, and we can refinance a bit, and then decide collectively how to go forward. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, most of the people who put money in were probably doing so because they were supporters of the club who wanted to save the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was their mindset, yeah. as opposed to necessarily people who were attached to the model of cooperativism, who saw the potential of what the community owned club could mean for the community, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. For, so we for, had to come back and have another go. Yeah. And, and and as context, you know, where were where were you where were you football wise in terms of the league structure? How were things going on the pitch? Um, and you know, what sort of, what sort of numbers of people were you appealing to? You meant you've talked about the number of members you had in the in the trust, but how how, how many supporters are there that were you were trying to raise this 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 sum from? Yeah, so we so we we play in the National League South, so step six. Um, we typically have home attendances of between 600 to probably 800 on, right. a, on, a, on a good day. Um, so, uh, and we, it's hard to say, but we, we sort of estimate that we have around 2,500 to 3,000 supporters yeah. who yeah. obviously don't come to a match every single time, but that's maybe our, our yeah. sort of catchment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was a relatively small base. Bath itself is a city of um, about 80,000 people, okay. obviously a big rugby city, but still there are 80,000 people in Bath who are kind of potential target market um, for the campaign. Um, things on the pitch, I mean, actually, ironically, we, we did very well in 2015. We got to the semifinals of the FA Trophy. We were a penalty shootout away from Wembley. Right. And actually, had we got into the final uh, and played at Wembley, we, um, maybe the, the, uh, you know, that would have paid off mm-hmm. all the debts yeah. or a big yeah. cut And maybe yeah. we would not be a community young club. Like maybe yeah. that would have kicked the can <laughs> down the road for another yeah. couple of uh-huh. years. Uh-huh. So there's a kind of a weird, you know, I certainly don't want to say that I'm happy we didn't get to the Wembley. That would be <laughs> amazing. But yeah, you know, these, you're always having to make these kind of trade-offs when you believe in this stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. That money might have actually just kind of uh, maybe worked to the long-term disadvantage, mm. uh, possibly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we were doing okay-ish on the pitch. Um, there were some, you know, some people weren't happy with the manager at the time, and it certainly unraveled quickly after that, but, you know, football-wise. Um, but, yeah, but we, we were in kind of a steady state, I suppose, football-wise. Yeah. But, of yeah. course, all of that was being propped up by unsustainable debt being injected yeah. into the club yeah. on a year-by-year basis. You had a handful of people who were working really, really hard to keep the club afloat, but they were just a handful of people, mm-hmm. and they definitely mm-hmm. needed more backup. You know, there was nothing in terms of. Uh, I mean, they just had no headspace to put any kind of long-term strategy. Things like marketing, things like social media. I mean, it was happening on a little volunteer basis, but there was no big thinking around that because they were just coming in every day and saying, "How do we stop this club from going bust today? Yeah. How do we make sure yeah. that?" The players are being paid. The VAT is being sorted out. That all the you know paperwork's being done. That was that was all they had the headspace to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it really is remarkable how they managed to keep going for so long. But yeah, we we, we saw there was a real need to bring more people uh, mm-hmm. 
around the table. I'm sure it's something that a lot of lot of fans of other clubs will recognise. You know, not being in crisis, but not being in great shape either. Um, and it's it's how do you how do you do something to, to to make things better when there's not that real sort of immediate motivating force at play there. Absolutely, and I think it's it's not just football clubs. I think that's true of some pubs. It's true of yeah. some you know, uh, arts venues in Bath that yeah. become community owned, where you know it's yeah. There's no real gun to the head. It's not necessarily going to go bust the next day, um, but yeah, the challenge becomes how do you really paint that vision of saying you know, football has changed. Uh, we can't go on like this forever, uh, and there's a real positive story to be told here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real sense that this a new way of doing things, a fundamentally different way of doing things, of, of organizing yourselves, um, can really create a sustainable model. I can't guarantee it, but it can put you on a much stronger footing for a sustainable model going forward and into the future. I, mean, I, I was reading the, you know, as part of our kind of marketing of the campaign and our research, I was reading, a, there's a fantastic book called Stars and Stripes, which is the official uh, history of Bath City Football Club, we play in black and white stripes, so okay. stars and stripes. Um, and you know, this this goes back to our founding in the 1889, uh, and pretty much within about 10 or 15 years of us being founded, there's a big fan push to raise some money to save the club. Hmm. Like it just happens every you know, generation, <laughs> this constant thing of you know how, <laughs> the fans digging deep to pay more to buy you out of the debt and you know figure out a way to get the new ground or whatever. So it's been going on and on and on and on for years. Um, but always, and this is true across football, it's always in that kind of supporters club model of raise the money the club needs, give it to the club, and let the club get on with it. Uh, and as, as, you know, as we all know within the movement, it's only really around 1990 that you start to see this idea of a supporters trust mm. where actually in, t- in return for your money, you actually get a stake in the governance. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is basically what we were saying to the supporters. You know, you know, most of them had been through several of these big fundraising, save the club, tin rattling exercises. The last one had only been about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we had to kind of say, look, this is a different model. One member, one vote. Keeps the doors open to new people coming in and getting involved on an ongoing basis. Um, because really, like those talents and skills and then um, attachments are what we need almost more than money. We need the money first, mm-hmm. but make the thing sustainable, you need to keep the model open. So yeah, we, we had to paint a picture of a whole new way of, d- of doing things that wasn't just yet another bailout. I think people weren't going to hand over, maybe we could have got 150,000 from the diehards who will just do anything to keep the club going, but we weren't going to make yeah. the serious money and raise the serious money we needed to change things mm. without presenting a much more attractive picture of how things can look under a new model. So yeah, you, you, you're absolutely right. I think you know, it's you can't just rely all the time on that sense of crisis. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask about you mentioned earlier um, community shares as the kind of mechanism that you use to to raise that capital in the first in the first effort. Um, for the benefit of people that aren't aware of what community shares are, would you mind just explaining you know how they work and and how they apply in a kind of a, the ownership of a football club context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Community shares are a way that cooperatives and community benefit societies can raise money for capital investment. Uh, it's, it's a type of a financial instrument that's only available to cooperatives and CDSs. Um, it essentially promises investors 
both a financial and social return. So there's a small financial return. It can't be more than a couple of percentage points above what you get from putting your money in a bank or into an ISA. Um, and that's compensated for by the social return of achieving the community objectives that you're keeping the thing alive or uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, achieving the social return you want. So things like uh, wind farms, um, uh, Hastings Pier uh, was one of these community shares. Um, you know, there's all kinds of kind of social enterprises and community businesses which, which can use these things to raise money. I think the, the important difference with other forms of investment is that they don't affect your voting rights. It's still a cooperative. It's still one member, one vote. Um, so and so it, it, it's not the case that if you put more money in, therefore you have more control over the enterprise, which is you know, obviously a big difference. I think what's different um, in terms uh, compared to simply chucking money in to save a club is that because the idea is that you are repaid your community shares, you, you, you know, the club eventually repays them, or the, the society eventually repays them, which means the society has to make a business case to show how it will repay you. So inbuilt to the idea of community shares is a degree of discipline around saying, here's how we will pay you back. And the person yeah. buying them has to look at that perspective and say, I believe you, this mm-hmm. makes sense to me. I understand how this works, therefore here's my money. Um, the other final key thing, which is really important, is that while the idea is that the club or society does pay you back, it only pays you back at a point where it can afford it. So it makes a forecast and says, yeah, we hope to pay you back in five years' time, six years' time, whatever. But if those repayments would threaten the business, the board can turn around and say, we need more time. Yeah. So in a sense, you're, you're kind of giving a bit of uh, leeway in terms of the risk you're taking as an investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and de-risking the society itself. So those are the main things. Now, that's not that's not that easy to explain. That took me about twenty seconds, thirty seconds there. Yeah. And I think if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, uh, I'm not sure how well many of the people who bought community shares in the Bassetti bid really understood how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'll put in the disclaimer that we were, you know, our prospectus was signed off by the community shares unit. It carried the community share standard mark. So, like, let me be clear. I'm not saying that we were, you know, in <laughs> yeah. any way yeah. confusing people or not telling them what they needed to know. But you know, we you know we ran a survey a while later, and we discovered that there were like around 100, maybe even 200 people who did not understand that by buying a community share, they had become a member of our trust. Mm. Yeah, they didn't understand yeah. that. Mm. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people don't quite understand that a community share is not what gives you society membership, although you have to have it in order to, yeah. you know. So, yeah, essentially yeah. If we're, the, the way it's working, I, I, I suppose it, it, you're right, it's very complex, but um, what people need to know is that it's a, ver- a very good way for a society like yourself to raise yeah. the necessary capital and part own the society as well so they own a stake yeah. in the society which ultimately owns the football club if it's the kind of uh, majority shareholder of the, of the club so um yeah i suppose that's the yeah. important thing really and there is also so you can also get social investment tax relief as well so if there are other clubs that are out there thinking about doing it or other supporters trust shares are a really good way to do it because mm-hmm. we've seen um uh, all sorts of different models but i suppose one we haven't really spoken about much on the podcast is community shares yeah 
one oh, one, yeah. of the, one, one of the things I think is really significant in the way you described it. You, you said earlier on that if it had just been you know more bucket rattling, um, you might have got hundred hundred fifty thousand. You got three hundred thousand doing it this way. So it so. It may be it may be technically difficult for people to understand, and some of the nuance may be lost on people. Um, but it was enough. It was enough of a difference that it got people putting their hand a lot deeper into their pocket than they would have done otherwise. So there must have been something very effective in the way that you got that message across, just to get that 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 level of investment um, through through that scheme. Oh yeah, and I mean, let me be clear. I'm a really big fan of community shares. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a great form of investment. It was a a very good way of uh, kind of repackaging and rebranding something that had already uh, had been sitting in uh, cooperative legislation for a long time. Mm. I'm a big fan of it. And I think the key thing is when you say to people, this is a community share that gives you both a social return and a financial return. Mm-hmm. And because it's a community share, it's one member, one vote. Mm. Like it, once you, and people got that, people yeah. understood that part yeah. of it. And that's the really most important thing. It's more once the thing's over and you start to unpick it and, yeah. There are layers of nuance yeah. underneath it, which you know I think it's incumbent on societies to do to, as much as they can to educate people around mm-hmm. around that. Overall, though, no, I think they're a fantastic instrument. Mm-hmm. They're very, very good for football clubs, and I think football clubs can use them. Um, I, I'd like to see football clubs using them for reasons other than simply buying stakes in football clubs. Yeah. I mean, of course, um, FC United in Manchester. I th- think I'm right in saying raised two million pounds mm. in community shares to go towards uh, the funding of their new stadium. Um, I think there's all kinds of things that we could be using them for. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a very big fan. And I think that they, they do help to tell that story of how this is different than just save the club, oh, but we'll be back in 10 years or yeah, five years. Yeah, and, yeah. And battle the team again. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think as well, even even on the, v- the very surface of it, the name Community Shares has got the right kind of sound about making yeah. somebody feel like they part-own yeah. something. Um, so you had the mechanism, you had the, the business plan, you'd had the first attempt. What is it that you kind of... Um, you, you So you said you were doing it from sort of a standing, standing point rather than running towards it. Because a year later you'd had you'd completed it. So what are the kind of steps that you took after you had the kind of first bid uh, that didn't really pay off? What what changed in between? Yeah, I think I think one of the key things that changed was that the I think by achieving um, the three hundred mark, well, it was only well, it was less than half of what we were aiming for. I think it demonstrated to the existing shareholders that we were negotiating with. There was real potential here. I think that yeah. it gave them faith that the city of Bath cared about the football club, and that you know it, it, it was possible to unlock this level of investment. That that was key. Um, I think the other thing that was definitely key was that um, we uh, started, or they started talks, and then we joined in talks with a developer to actually redevelop the stadium or re- redevelop our, our main ground. So suddenly you then had this new uh, clear route to clearing the debt and a possible route to profitability through a major infrastructural change at the club. So when we went back the second time, there were a lot more, uh, there's a lot more meat on the bones in terms of the plan we're actually putting forward. And I think it's fair to say the impetus for that came from the bid. I think that, you know, that uh, while we weren't the ones who initiated it, I think the first bid created the conditions of possibility that that, that, that would start happening. Um, so, I mean, the, so that was a big change. So we had, we had, we had a clear 
difference from the previous bid um, of how we'd actually uh, to pay, pay, pay things back. Sorry, my phone's <laughs> uh, So we had a clear point of difference from the initial campaign of how, how we pay people back and how we clear the debts um, of the club. But more broadly, I think we just, you know, the, that first experience of the campaign had been part of the education process. So yeah. not only have we educated uh, our own supporters about how we wanted to do a different model, we'd also, I think, um, raised awareness around the city of Bath. So people who might have been dimly aware of it and not quite committed the first time uh, were more receptive the second time. The press and the media were certainly more receptive the second time. Uh, I, I think you know, that had a real knock-on knock on effect. The other thing that was very important was that when we went back to, I'm sorry, I, I should explain that because of the redevelopment and because we also attracted some other friendly uh, investment support uh, through the bid, um, the second time we went for it, we were only, our, our target was only 300,000. We were only asked to match what we'd already okay. raised before. Okay. We actually raised in the end was 365,000. So we, we, we beat that target. Um, so uh, the, the target was easier. We had all of the details of the people who had pledged the previous year. We had all their details. Mm-hmm. So our kind of marketing campaign became a lot more targeted. And I, I think mm-hmm. we retained, uh, off the top of my head, it was around 75%. I think we retained the people who had already um, uh, pledged the first time around. They confirmed their pledges. They, they, they carried on. And then we raised a new investment for other people who were excited by, by the idea. Um, so I think, you know, we were a lot more in gear. We had brought more and more people involved. More and more people had come join the team to actually get the thing over the line. I mean, so that that really helped. I think that that really made a a, a big difference to us in terms of just raising awareness and having a team in place. And did, so, and and in the end of the the successful bid second time round, did all of that investment come in the form of community shares, uh, or were people contributing in in, in other ways? We had, I mean, well, we, we had donations, but I think that was, I mean, I don't have the figures in front of me. I think that we had donations that were probably uh, less than £40,000, okay. I would say, off the top of my head. But it was so donations to the shares. Yeah. We also had friendly investment uh, of about £350,000. So okay. it was basically interest-free investment, which is basically tied to the redevelopments yeah. um, going ahead. So it's a very, very friendly terms. From, from friendly investors who I think you know were, were attracted to the project because they'd seen the amount of support that it, it could receive and the potential good it could do in the community. Um, so yeah, it was yeah it was a mixture of, of uh, friendly friendly loans and um, and community shows. You mentioned uh, the marketing and one thing that I've seen in the past which I absolutely love was the film that you you did which is quite special perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the the film you you used to help promote the bid yeah well I mean it's it's absolutely essential these days if you're crowdfunding in any way to have a a decent video uh, clip on your website Uh, we're very fortunate at Bath City in that one of our key supporters and uh, moving uh, kind of one of the early movers and getting our trust going is uh, Ken Loach, the uh, the film director um, and sort of great lion of left wing politics, mm. um, <laughs> and he and uh, you know it's, it's a kind of a great champion of communities doing things uh, for themselves. So yes, we, we had Ken Loach uh, who essentially produced 
uh, that film, we actually, we actually, the director was a very talented, um, very talented director who's worked on other uh, films for um, sort of Shelter and uh, other charities. Uh, and Ken was very impressed by him and kind of brought him under his wing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they made this fantastic film together uh, to promote the bid. Um, yeah, Ken's been great throughout. Uh, he's really been like uh, uh, people sometimes think he's like a figurehead that we wheel out to give speeches and do interviews and kind of sprinkle his stardust. And that's all he does. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I remember recently because his film, his last film, Daniel Blake, mm. was incredibly successful. And I re- remember very clearly there was one day I was sitting uh, in a you know freezing cold uh, meeting room at Torton Park. Uh, sitting opposite Ken Loach, where he was kind of complaining and saying, "You, know, there's no, there's no dedicated page in the program for our supporters trust. We must do something about this. We have to fix this problem." Okay. And I'm going, "Yeah, Ken, fine. Yeah, I'll, we'll we'll figure it out." And thinking to myself, yesterday you were accepting an award. Like, <laughs> I think it was like the Bafters or the, whatever it was. He was on stage in black tie accepting an award. And now you're sitting in like at eight o'clock in this like freezing cold meeting room, talking about the program at Bath City and like how we're going to get a road to go in so someone's writing something. He, he really gets stuck in to mm-hmm. the detail, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the uh, all of the kind of uh, nitty gritty that it takes to get a supporters trust successfully you know running. He was also the one who really badgered us. I think when we first designed the bid, we decided that the um, minimum investment would be five hundred pounds. And we based that on a, um, another local uh, campaign that, that had happened with, with, with a pub in Bath called The Bell. Uh, and we agreed that. And just Ken just wore us down saying, no, it's too high. Mm. You're leaving people out. Like, 250 is a better compromise. But like, no, Ken, we've, we've decided it. We've debated it. We decided it. He just kept wearing us down, wearing us down. And eventually we went with 250, which mm. I, I think was the right move. Yeah. I mean, we, definitely, yeah. I mean, we ended up with having, uh, I think, about 640 people ended up no, sorry sorry excuse me uh we ended up with about um 570 people buying community shares and i think we, we got a much wider base of people because we did prices at a point that was you know yeah. affordable to, to to more people and you know i think it was still high enough that we captured yeah. you know uh, enough value we didn't leave anything on the table uh but yeah he, he's been fantastic mm. and he, that film we made i, I highly recommend to people to invest properly in making those films i think they're very they're very effective you know we spent a bit of money to actually make sure we got a high quality professional product if you can do it i think it's worth its weight in gold mm. and where can people watch it if they want to if they're looking for some inspiration um where is it oh, well if you go on youtube and search big bastard bid okay okay that's where you'll find it right great uh, yeah we'll also include it in the program notes to this yep. uh, please to this. do yeah, yeah. that'd be great yeah, I was about to say go to the Big Bass City Bid website, but we need to do some work on that because it's basically still like frozen on. We did it. It's still true. Back and turn it into kind of an archive and like a, yeah. you know lessons we learned. And sure. Da, 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 da. Maybe SD will give some funding for that. <laughs> so that, a, that was about. Uh, so you 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 raised the money you needed. Um, over a year ago and you've sort of been in uh fan ownership for a year now how have you found that what are the kind of uh, things that you've learned from from over the past 12 months um 
it, it's it, it's been a it's been an interesting time. Um, I mean, it's not easy to take over a club. No. Um, I think at the moment, I would say the successes kind of outweigh the problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're trying to do a very difficult thing in terms of doing a massive redevelopment of our main stand, which will involve putting uh, actually changing the high street as well, uh, uh, and building accommodation shops. So it's, it's quite a big deal, and mm. that's very sensitive with the local residents. Um, and already we've had people protesting against us because uh, they're not happy about the potential of having student flats built um, in their area. It's a very emotive mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. in Bath. Um, so yeah, we're having to grapple with that notion of we're here for the community, but the community isn't always going to be here for us. Sure. Um, and I think also in terms of moving towards a more democratic model and making sure that the supportive society now that it's majority shareholder, you know, we have a lot of growing up to do as well as a supporters trust. You know, that's quite a sharp shock for us to go from being, to some extent, the kind of always oh, the fly in the ointment, you know, the little nagging voice kind of with our little kind of you know seventeen percent stake saying you should govern this club better, this isn't right, this isn't right, this should be like this. And now we're in charge, and we have to make sure that that mm, yeah, happens. Yeah. So like, that's that's uh, a bit of a shift. And I said there have been some teasing troubles in terms of making sure that we're communicating properly with fans, making sure that we're delivering on the promises we, we've made in terms of the democratic structures that we've, we've put in place. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we're getting to grips with that. Um, a lot of it just means you know, it comes from experience, it comes from training. I think one big lesson as well is that things, uh, it's easy to write things down and create governance papers and standing orders. Uh, it's not really until the shit hits the fan or the rubber hits the road that those things really come into their own. Mm, yeah. And you see whether they really work and whether they are really appropriate for your organization. It takes those little battles, the little controversies, to tease out what the right governance structure is for you. I think the biggest um, kind of internal debate we've had was around uh, 3G. Mm. So the the board, as part of the redevelopment, wants to install a 3G pitch at Torton Park, which would theoretically bring in more income um, you know, through rental and also theoretically bring in or allow us to deliver more social impact mm-hmm. um, through kind of low cost or low rent usage to or free usage to community groups. Um, that was controversial among supporters. I think what we dealt with quite well, we did use what was available to us in terms of our governance and our democratic structures to make sure that a proper debate was held around that. Hmm. So at an, in, at an interim general meeting, uh, supporters put forward motions to make sure that there would be an, uh, a vote on 3G they made sure the vote would be separate to the redevelopment. So it wouldn't be a case of saying, if you're against 3G, you have to vote down the whole redevelopment. We yeah. made sure they were treated as different components. I think really critically, we made sure that people who were opposed to 3G uh, were able, were given access to the same information as those who supported it and were able to create a case, a kind of a pro-grass case or an anti-3G case that was included in the mail-out to members. Okay. So rather than having a situation where the kind of technocrats and the kind of pro-grass, progress type people, sorry, the pro-3G, you know, we must have progress, sensible people put out their 
business case and you know you know uh, uh, feasibility study, and the only voices against it were kind of vague voices on Twitter yeah. and Facebook going, oh, but it's ruining the game and da 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 and. You know, rather than those people being written off as being romantics and kind of Luddites, they were able to say, well, actually, hold on. These numbers don't necessarily add up. There are health risks we haven't thought about. Um, we sold the whole club on this romantic vision of being this kind of non-league, against modern football, charming, you know, old stadium. Like, isn't this going to disrupt the very point of what yeah. we're trying to do? So they were able to make, you know, a really strong evidence-based case you know, in a fair democratic discussion. Hmm. I mean, they were completely annihilated. <laughs> I think it was like 89% were in favor of at least exploring 3G. But I think that, you know, we went through the democratic process properly. And I hope that people walked away from that feeling that, you know, it was a fair discussion and now we can all unite around that idea and push on. So that, that was a really good experience in terms of democracy. Um, more broadly, sorry, I feel like I'm being a little bit negative here. I've gone straight to the kind of the tough bits. In terms of the positive, it's been fantastic. I mean, the amount of people we've now attracted both to the board and in terms of volunteering, uh, the marketing side of things has been completely reinvented. We have a general manager now who's really um, revitalizing the operational side of things. Uh, so there's real sense of optimism and win behind the sales um, across the club. So, I mean, that, that's been really, really positive. Uh, um, so, you know, despite all the teething troubles, the overall mood, I think, among supporters is still very positive about the community ownership and about the way that we've, uh, you know, changed, changed the way the club uh, uh, is, uh, has been working. Our first AGM comes up in June, and that's the first chance we'll have to vote um, for the directors of, mm. of, of the club. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's a really positive step. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's been really good. That's great. Um, I just coming back to what you were saying there about you know that debate about grass or three G. Um, it's really it's, it's quite a powerful example that you you sh- you you shared there about taking alternative or differing re- views really seriously and giving them giving them a, a really genuinely uh, fair listening to. Um, I think I think often um, when these emotive topics come up at football clubs, you know, one side or the other will feel they've been railroaded or, or been ignored, yeah. um, and it's and it's it's taking a very opposite view to that. And there's probably one year into your your new life as a club, um, you know, to be able to demonstrate that as clearly as that on something as emotive and important for the club as as that that you take that seriously, that you give as much. It pays much attention to the option that you that 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 wasn't in favour by, uh, the majority in the room as you do to the to the one they were in favour. That's that'd be very powerful. And we'll keep people engaged and keep people believing that you are trying to do do things differently than than previous mm. regimes. Um, I, yeah, I wish absolutely. I wish I wish there were more stories like that from from other clubs because yeah, that's, that's actually, it really that, is I mean, powerful. Just one further note. I mean, it, it's worth noting as well that um, it, it was the supporters themselves who used. The mechanisms of the general meeting to make sure that that debate happened. I'm not saying the club wasn't going to do that in the first mm. place, but it wasn't just the club kind of saying, we're going to give you some democracy. It was the supporters <laughs> saying, within this new context, we can kind of write for ourselves, we can decide for ourselves how decisions are made. Yeah. And I think so actually you, using our constitution, using our democratic structures as a tool, mm. uh, and, then, and, then, and then the club responded by being very, by really embracing that. And actually the club in fairness went, then went above and beyond uh-huh. By having extra Q and A sessions, 
know, meetings with people. So, you know, they, they really responded to that. So it, it was a two-way process. It wasn't just a club kind of saying, yeah. here's some democracy. Yeah. <laughs> it's really refreshing to hear, actually, that, you yeah. know, that football can be conducted uh, uh, in this way. Um, what well, One thing I wanted to ask about, and I'm not sure which or which point it happened on your journey, but I, I'm aware, because I remember seeing you present about it last year, was the survey that you did with, with fans. Uh, and I've never seen anything like it. And it was, I really enjoyed seeing it. And it kind of carried on from that refreshing, um, honest nature around what it is to support a club. And you actually were asking, uh, I don't know if they were the member, were they members? Is it a member survey? Um, or just no, people interested in the bid? Everybody pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It went out to almost everyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, was a, it was a pretty, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I pushed for this because I, I felt that it was very important at the start of the process um, to really figure out what people wanted from the club, what the club meant to them and what community ownership meant to them. We had presented a certain vision in our community uh, share off our perspectives of what it could mean, you know, we being the society that supporters trust. But I felt it was very important to get out of the mindset of simply saying, well, there's a board and they'll deliver. And I guess now we can vote them out if we want. But essentially, like, they're going to do it. And we're going to carry on being just supporters and spectators and that's it. To really get people thinking about you know, that they are now kind of stakeholders in the club, that they have a say in the club, they have, um, they they need to think about what's, what's important to them, you know, what's... Uh, you know, how do they want it to be different in the future? How do they want it to be the same? So we designed a survey that, you know, rather than, you know, it didn't talk about anything. It wasn't a customer, it wasn't a customer survey. It wasn't a customer service survey. It wasn't like a satisfaction survey around, you know, the, the uh, facilities and the amenities. It was really about the values of the club, what people thought was important. Attractive football, uh, financial sustainability, volunteer spirit, professionalism. And we asked people about these things. And actually, I think what's quite important is we asked them to rank them. Mm. We actually said, like, what's more important, this, you know, this or this? Yeah. yeah. Um, and if I remember, sorry to interrupt, but if I remember no, correctly, you had, because uh, that's, a, I mean, that's a question I'm sure every fan would love to be asked, was actually, do you value a certain style of play over, I think, was it progress through the league? So you were basically yes. asking, you know, yeah. should, we, should we be trying to play nice football or should we be doing any, anything we can to get promoted? Which are mm. two very, and if you ask fans, I think they would have a very strong opinions on those. Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, attractive football just about edged it out. I think the top three were, you know, attractive football, ambition to fund the leagues but number one financial sustainability which mm, yeah. is obviously very yeah. very reassuring to hear um as someone from a supporters trust perspective or community ownership perspective but yeah i mean actually looking at attractive football versus just progress up the leagues you know people have very different views on that but i think it's important to ask and important to get them to rank mm. you know that kind of thing mm. um so yeah i mean i remember we, we we launched it and we we had hoped for um i think a minimum of 100 responses, and we were hoping to get 200. We had 650 responses, <laughs> like way, way, you know, way earlier than our deadline. It all, they were just fighting through. People mm. were just falling over themselves to give us information. Because, you know, supporters care about this stuff. I mean, it, you know, it, it really makes a, a big difference. Um, I think also, as well as asking about the values, we also asked people about how they wanted the democracy to work. 
so we sort of said like do you want to be consulted on every single decision do you want to like how much say do you want mm, in all this mm. various things do you want the board just to get on with it or uh, you know so i mean and that gave us some guidance around exactly what people wanted and it's paid off in the sense that you know when we've gone back and communicated around things like 3g things around the development we're able to say you know we asked you what was important you told us financial mm-hmm. sustainability mm-hmm. therefore we are pursuing this you told us attractive football therefore we are pursuing this yeah um of course the board still needs to kind of uh show leadership around those issues but um uh, yeah it, it gives you a structure and a context to make decisions and communicate back to people and say you know we are listening this, mm-hmm. this we are responding to what you have told us you want mm. well Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been Brilliant. great talking to you, Oliver. Really enjoyed my that. My pleasure, yeah. I hope my answers weren't too long. I no, it's no, no, no. <laughs> it was, it's a fascinating story, and it's one that I feel that um, needs to get out there a bit more. You always hear about, you know, kind of fan-owned stories, FC United and, and a lot of others, which are all very worthy, of course, but this is um, just a really interesting, refreshing way that you've gone about it, and uh, I think there's a lot of good practice there for a lot of other clubs to learn from. Yeah. Absolutely right. Thank you for joining us. If I can do a quick plug for Supporters Direct, I mean... Of course, always. If you are a community-owned club and you want to go this way, make sure you are a member of Supporters Direct and make sure you use the the hub at supportersdirect.org because, yeah, there's a great potential for us to share information. I I always find it incredibly useful and inspiring to speak to other fan-owned clubs of all sizes and different leagues as well. Um, You know, use it and we should all be relying on each other to help each other to make sure yeah. that mm. uh, um, community ownership really is the best way for, for football yeah well we'll have to get you up to Scotland at some point to uh, to share your learnings <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you Ollie thanks Ollie alright okay. thanks guys cheers Take speak to you soon bye now all the best cheers okay so thanks again to Oliver for coming on the, the, the show with us um, I was really taken by um the thing that Oliver said about supporters direct and and encouraging people to use the hub and share experience. Mm. Uh, I, I often think that as football fans and as football as a sport, it's it's a competitive world, um, and we all we see each other as rivals, sometimes enemies. Mm. Um, but actually, you know, there's more that unites us than there is that divides us, uh, and the experiences that people have had at one club, um, it should be shared and are and are shared, and the people who have been responsible for these these movements and for these successes, uh, are more than happy to share their story with others and, and let others kind of follow in their follow in their footsteps. Uh, so I think that's one. You know, certainly read up more about the the Bath City story. You know, go and check out what's written on the on the Sporters Direct Hub uh, and and see some of those, those those ideas. And if you're considering any of these uh, these types of routes for your own club, um, you know, look look to people who've done it before as a as a first step and learn from them. Mm, absolutely, yeah, a huge amount of resources that are produced and events that are held and um, just best practice sharing that takes place. So it's always incredibly useful to be involved in it and. Um, yeah. Uh, and and just to 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 get involved, so yeah. uh, we couldn't encourage anybody more to do that. That's right. It's a bit of a common thread in a lot of these stories that that they don't always go perfectly first time round. Sometimes mm. it takes a couple couple of goes to to make these these steps. Uh, and I always think you learn more about more more from things going, you know, 
not so smoothly than yeah. you do from yeah. having a success first time yeah. round. So you know, learn from learn from other people's difficulties or, or, or struggles. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So join Supporters Direct, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for listening to the Behind the Goals podcast. Remember, you can get in touch with the show by emailing us at uh, behind the goals at gmail.com no, no behind no, the no. goals at hotmail.com behind the goals at hotmail.com behind the goals at gmail.com goes to somebody else oh right a, a rival podcast oh maybe. boo don't, don't, <laughs> don't email them God. No, I, tried to, I tried to get the gmail one but it's gone uh, I don't know who who on earth would have a name like that <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah well email us or tweet us which is um, at uh, sup direct scott and we'd love to hear from you yeah until then see you then yeah have a good week Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott.